Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with John Hinman, owner of Hinman's Bakery in Denver, Colorado, as well as founder of CHOW, which stands for Culinary Hospitality Outreach and Wellness. John, thanks for being on the show. Hey, good morning, Jensen. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. We go back quite a few years. We might touch on that in a few spots. So I'm excited to have this conversation. And I want to start with some of your origin story. You were born in Rome, New York. Where the hell is Rome, New York, first of all? Rome, New York is smack dab in the middle of, the New, York, of New York State. Um, it was started, there was the uh, Erie Canal, which goes from Albany to Buffalo, and there's some famous songs about that. And it was uh, a big Air Force base, and it was a home of the last Woodstock that they burned down. Understood. That is that is <laughs> the the byline. You did well. Rome is proud. That that was a good uh, uh, city of Rome uh, tagline. I like it. So yeah. we always we always like to find out some interesting things, things that people might not know about you. More of the human aspect versus kind of just where you worked in your intro. And I love this that you are avid in the RC car. You're actually in a in a car club and RC car club. Tell us about that a little bit, what that is as far as just having a unique outlet that you don't hear about a lot, especially in the restaurant business. Um, the RC car club, our group is called uh, the Ridge Runners. And um, it's something I got into pretty much about a year ago around now because um, I had a lot of stress from work and I was doing a lot less baking and more business stuff and I'm really creative and I, and I like to build things with my hands. So I, I, uh, I picked up an RC car kit and started building uh, one tenth scale model trucks. Um, you know, and they have everything from down to winches to real tires to, um, I mean, it, you know, if you take a Ford truck and look at my little truck, it's pretty much the same. And then uh, a group of us, <laughs> I went up to uh, Red Rocks, there was an event and I was like, who the hell shows up at these things anyways? And I must have turned my car around twice. You know, like, I'm not going to go to this. This is silly. And I got there and there was about 250 people up there at Red Rocks with all their little trucks. And um, they're capable of driving over all the same things that your, your one-to-one Jeep would do at Moab. So, um, and I just got fell into this community and I really, really like it. It's, it's not um, part of the restaurant group. I feel really... Uh, anonymous in that group and um you know it's just a bunch of people that you know wouldn't usually say hi to each other at the bank that have this common um really fun hobby that you know we all do together and you know we start a little facebook group and you know we pretty much go out once a week you know and uh, meet up and play with our grown adults with their little toys (laughs) <laughs> super cool being playful i think it's super cool we talk about positive outlets again in our industry a lot so i think it's super valuable 
All right, the next few tidbits about you I love because I'm such a movie buff and it instantly, all of these things that you, you wrote about just instantly made me think of movies, so it's super funny. You are a self-proclaimed record maniac. You have a vinyl collection. Instantly, I went to High Fidelity and I was like, I wonder how John organizes these. Does he do it autobiographically like he does in that movie? So talk to us about that a little bit, what that means to you, like who you are through the lens of your record collection. Um, through my record collection. So, uh, you know, records, I do all these rabbit holes. Like I, I got in, I'm into RC cars now. Last year I was into records the last few years and I'm still buying records, but um, they, they are really, um, I started playing records when I was a little kid and I remember I played Country Roads over and over and over again. Um, and that's the song that taught me how to work the record player. And, you know, I always was the kid that hung out in the record store. I still go to Twist and Shout probably, you know, three Saturdays a month and hang out because that's where you kind of find your people. And I've always found my people in the record store. And, um, you know, and it, it became like a really great tradition to come home from work and not turn on the TV after a stressful day. And there's something great about opening a record and putting it on and sitting through the entire side, even if you like the song or not, and going through the, you know, the, 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 the uh, cover of it and reading along with the lyrics. And it's just like, takes the day away from me. So it's really great. And, um, you know, I, I do organize them in, in genre as my life goes on, you know, like here's my dad's favorite records from the sixties that he gave to me. Here's the ones from my high school. Here's my current ones. Here's the Brits over here, but you know, there might be Phil Collins and the Brits from my high school. So they are kind of um, in order of the genre of my life, which is pretty, you pointed that out pre uh, pre interview and, and you're totally right. I, I did that without even thinking about it. Yeah, it's so personal. I think it's so cool. It's just so cool. It's so personal, and it's so you. And, and it's like an instant reflection of moments and captured in time and, and in mm -hmm. lyric and in, and in melody, which I think is really really great. And then to I think go everybody has a that. great. Oh, sorry. I think no, everybody no, no, has ahead, a please. soundtrack. Has a soundtrack for their life. You know, um, and 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 I think music is just as transportive as food. You know, you can taste something and, and be zonked back to summer camp or. I listen to Al Green and I think of um, hang, being with Maddie and Gabe and Josh at Vesta at specifically four o'clock in the afternoon because that was the album we put on to put us all back together before our main shift. You know, um, music is, is very transformative and, and time traveling. So it has speaking, a great parallel. Speaking of that, I love this. We'll go a little further down this rabbit hole because it was super interesting to me. You are a fan of Bruce Springsteen, the boss. You are not afraid to bust out some risky business dance moves to Dancing in the Dark or Born to Run, both famous boss songs. I mean, now I really want this podcast to be a vlog so that we can get some video of this. I know we're going to have to do this. Well, you know, that's like uh, anybody. I'm going to give a shout out to everybody listening. The next time you see John Hinman, you have to ask him to bust out a risky business dance move. It is a uh, must. Well, they better bring the tidy whities because I don't. Wear you those. have been put on blast, John. <laughs> so you know. Oh, what gosh. is it about that? Just letting loose, being goofy again, like you mentioned. I, I think that's a great, fun, just playful way to, to to be. I mean, you've never busted out in song and dance when nobody's home. Hell yes. Yeah, and what's your song? Oh man, uh, dancing on a ceiling from. Uh, 
uh, Lionel Richie from Lionel or Richie was like the jam. I remember it was closing song at one of my first restaurant jobs, Wallabies Bar and Grill. Shout out to my uncle Rick. I mean, my first restaurant job because it's a you know family legacy for us. And there was the closing song list, and Dancing on the Ceiling was the thing we would play. And man, we just would go crazy after doing 500 covers. It's the only thing that got you through was waiting for Dancing on the Ceiling. Amazing. So I love it. Nice. I think I'm well, all about it. Restaurants have their own heartbeat. And a lot of times there is a playlist. There's a, there's yep, a, opening a song to it. Yeah. The, uh, well, I have that on vinyl. So I challenge you to come over with your vlog and uh, we can have a dance off. We're making it happen. I absolutely <laughs> love it. So then this again, now let's go to the next thing, because once again, I just couldn't get out of the, the, the cinematic uh i don't know effect power that your life had story had on me and so we always like to dig in people's pantries because i think it's interesting to know what people eat at home and you have cheddar cheese and triscuits which instantly made me think of billy madison one of my favorite uh dumb comedies of all times the delicious triscuit crackers why is that something that's just so nourishing to your soul that it's a staple in your house uh the, the i like the plain trisket you know just the sea salt i don't like this rosemary stuff or anything that they've been it's doing too, it's too so let's, let's be clear enough. there yeah it's just throw it throws everything off and it's cracker barrels white sharp cheddar cheese and that piece of cheese fits exactly on top of that perfectly salted trisket and you know i think that's like a a comfort food, a really good comfort food for me, because that's something that we always had around the house or when people came over, my mom would bust them out uh, to serve, or we would have them, you know, down at the lake where I grew up, I grew up on a lake. And, um, you know, it, it, I think that's like another safety net, like albums are for me. Like, um, I think I have all these little funny safety nets. Now that you bring all these, you're bringing out the stuff in me that um, I, I'm a single guy and live alone. So, I tend to, when I get home, I think I tend to do the things that, you know, make me think of home. And I've never yeah, really thought about that before. Sim so, simple so. comforts. Well, we get, yeah. you know, we get deep here at the Best Serve Podcast. This is, uh, this is good stuff because I think it's so interesting the way that we find ourselves in kitchens, in restaurants, in breweries, in hotels, whatever our hospitality outlet is. So much of the way that we express ourselves comes from a lot of these kind of dynamics and I'm super interested in them because so often I personally can directly correlate a lot of the things that I am in a kitchen to the things that I am outside the kitchen and, and it's super interesting to me so that stuff is really really great and I just love it I, just, I was like that's a movie that's a movie that's a movie I was like this guy is like <laughs> this guy is like writing a script over here I love it so it's kind of interesting, like the records are right. my dad and the crackers are my mom. And I used to build like uh, those old school slot cars and trains with my dad. And wow, you're really uh, taking me down a road here. <laughs> it's, it's super great. And it's, it's all informed kind of the balance that you have and the creativity that you have. And I think those, those outlets are super like, personal to us. And I think they, they, they tell a lot about us. So thank you for taking us down those rabbit holes. Now, uh, starting in the industry, I'm always interested also in the first job in the industry, like, was it love at first sight? Like, were you just in there for a summer job? Those kind of things I think are interesting as well that kind of inform our path within the industry. Was it a mistake? Was it, you know, meant to be all of those? And you started at 
Pasta J in Denver, Colorado. Now, Pasta J is, is an icon in Boulder, Colorado, as a old school, you know, red sauce type joint. And they had a location in Denver, Colorado. And that's where you started your career. So why was that impactful? Why did you start working there? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, that kind of all happened on accident. Uh, there was a Pasta J's on 14th and Market. And um, I was at uh, University of Denver at the time. And uh, one of my friends got a job down there with my roommate. And he said, oh, they're looking for more people. They need servers. So um, I took the summer job. And I had no, had no restaurant experience whatsoever. And I was a server for precisely maybe three days when then um, this is a very big turning point in my life um, because I was a server and you know those really big red tumbler uh, Pepsi cups well I dumped 12 of those of iced tea on one customer and um, that night I found myself in the kitchen peeling garlic and um, that's how I got my start in the restaurant business was unbelievable uh, one clumsy moment and one clumsy set you on moment. a path yep i think we all have them you know i don't that know if they're clumsy great. or something but it, it, there's points in all of our lives that stand out like that that all of a sudden shift shift the rest of our lives that poor drenched customer has no idea that they no. started a sequence that ended up with you being an icon in your own right of the pie world i think that's super i think that's super interesting the the serendipity sometimes seems like a mistake but it really all kind of leads you down an interesting path doesn't it it does and and that was pretty funny that kitchen because i you know caught myself on fire one morning and um i learned a lot you know and uh, i still have friends from there my old friend bridger uh who actually spent some time at the bakery that's where i met him and um you know, oh, that's great. We love to hear about people. Tell us your roommate's name, throw out names. I'm, I'm all about just like people hearing their names mentioned in your story because I think it's so important. So Bridger, who else was? Yeah, Bridger Hardy. Um, yeah, my roommate at the time was still one of my very good friends and lives here. His name's Trip Gebhardt, but uh, he's in the financial uh, world. Um, but there was Bridger and I remember No Doubt came in when they were nobody for dinner and Bridger was the only one that knew who they were and was totally freaking out over Gwen Stefani and um, there was and, and Pasta James was the only gig in town. We had uh, John Entwistle from The Who in for dinner one night um, and then uh, Pasta Jay was kind of famous in his own right uh, at that time. Um, so we always had the CU people in and we had the um, the members of the Grateful Dead in at, at that time. It was a pretty, you know, I didn't realize at the time what I was getting myself into because, you know, I was just slinging pizzas out of there and pulling manicotti out of the oven and burning my arm and um, having, having fun, you know. All and about fun, all about it was, fun. It was just about fun. It wasn't about the food. It was more about the fun, how much fun you, I could have. You found the food later and found pie later, which is a perfect segue into it was like to play around this time one of our best served on icebreaker games and being the the master of pie you've won every award when it comes to pie heralded you're selling ridiculous amounts of pie and and rightfully so at uh, at Hinman's bakery so we wanted to play a game about pie and have the expert give us a little advice on our pie game especially as we're coming into the holiday season right now everyone's 
needing that nourishment. You talked about that comfort level. So pie is such a comfort thing. And we are going to play a game called Live Free Pie Hard. There was a lot of, John, there was a lot of pie puns that I had to choose from. And I went with the Live Free Pie Hard. I hope, and, I hope you like it. And to say on your movie track, you're part of my like favorite series of Die Hard series, because I think there's a Live Free or Die Hard. John, I'm glad you picked up on that, because I was very aware when I did finally pick that <laughs> one. I was like, you know what? It's my, it's my favorite Christmas movie. It's that and Christmas Vacation. And Die Hard, for everyone listening, fight me on it. It's a Christmas movie. It's a Christmas movie, man. Damn right. All right. So there's this is an opportunity for me to geek out a little bit because I knew this, but I didn't know this. There's actually four styles, four lanes of pies. And, uh, and it was interesting kind of digging in and doing some research on pie a little bit. So the four styles of pie, what we want you to do is actually tell us in each of these categories, kind of your go-to, the best in show here, and maybe a little of the why behind that pie. Because I'm thinking I'm very interested, like if, if the pie expert is eating pie in these different categories, what are you eating? Those four categories are cream, fruit, custard, and savory. So let's start with cream. If you're making a cream pie for the holidays, if you're making a cream pie to show off to your friends, what is that cream pie and why? <laughs> I could tell a funny cream pie story about the Twitter, but I won't. Do it. It's a, do it. All right, we love so I'm going to have to say coconut cream pie, and this is a dirty kitchen story, and I'll make it brief, but I started at a restaurant uh, a few years ago, and they said, we want you to tweet all your pies. And I didn't have Twitter, and I didn't really know about Twitter, so I got a Twitter account. And so the first pie I put up there is, was a coconut cream pie, and I love coconut cream pie. And um, so I do the, I put a picture up there, and I do all the pound sign things or hashtags as we call them and I put up um pound sign cream pie and then I was like oh I wonder how that works and then I searched it and I didn't realize that Twitter had porn on it so I uh I saw a bunch of vulgar things and then my coconut cream pie in that line and now I call it um you know I held the phone up in the kitchen and I said Twitter has porn and everybody laughed and um, and that's about and I call it now I call it the the twatter. <laughs> Unbelievable. That is so great. What what a, what a flummox there. My mom's going like, to hey, kill me. <laughs> I know it. Check me out. Look at me doing this technology social media thing and using the the pound sign as you say. It. You totally dated yourself there, John. That's right. Uh, perfect. This is an, could not have been a better way to start this game. Coconut cream it, it, pie, amazing cream pie. Now everybody is forever either. I love it. Everybody is either now going to be falling in love with coconut cream pie or never eat a coconut cream pie again in their entire life. Yep, well done, John. Well done. Let's get into fruit. I know this is a really important category for you. Some of the best fruit pies that I've had uh, are coming from from you over the years. So fruit pie. This is a tough one. Picking one fruit pie it's like picking your favorite child what fruit uh, pie are you going with and that's why? really easy for me actually it's a cherry All right pie. why uh, cherry pie because it's a great song written about it um i grew up eating hostess cherry pies and um cherry pie was the pie that i really worked on for all my pie contests to become a good pie maker um that's the one i always try to perfect 
that that's just I don't know why, but that's that's my favorite pie, you know. And and the pie I use, I, I was specific about where I get the cherries and um, and two kinds of cherries, and I found that right balance of them. And um, you know, that's one of the flavors that just takes me down a uh, takes me down a memory lane. And it's got it's got a song to it. So we're getting back to this common thread here. Now, not to give too much away, but what are your two styles of cherries? I'm very interested in that. Uh, we use a tart cherry and we use a sweet cherry, but it's probably 70% tart and 30% sweet. It's about the ratio. I'm into it. Now, on the fruit pie, I personally, apple pie is my go-to. And I want to give a shout out to my father-in-law, Daniel Husingay. Dan Husingay inspired me that every time he makes pies, and he'll make pie this holiday season, and they're great pies he will have pie and ice cream for breakfast the next morning. He likes it more than pie. It's almost like cold pizza the next day. I do it every time now. I'm all about pie and ice cream for breakfast the next morning. Nice. Which, it's, just, it's just great. It's, again, that comfort uh, is so, so awesome. Now, I have a question for you. Cheddar cheese on apple pie, yay or nay? Yay. Okay. For, all right. For sure. I, it doesn't sweet and salty well savory, here. yeah? Yeah, it doesn't sell well here in Denver, and it's a total Northeast thing. Um, I got, I did uh, pies for Nyman Ranch uh, pork farmer dinner, and I did cheddar cheese pies in Iowa, and they went crazy for it. So I think it's a total regional deal. I'm into it. I like it. All right, custard. You're doing a custard pie. What are you thinking? The custard pie, I'm going to have to go with our own um, salted maple pie. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun and it is, it's super sweet, like, like um, that famous crack pie, but it has this, we put uh, salt on top of it, uh, sea salt, and it, you know, the sweet versus that super salt, it just makes this awesome little trip in your mouth. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I like the sweet and salty for a few reasons. I like the intensely sweet. I like the salt that it balances out. Also, salt amplifies the sweetness, but it alters it too. So you yeah. actually have like layered sweetness, which I think is super interesting. It's not very one note in its sweetness. So adding salt makes it sweeter, and it also makes it nuanced in its sweetness. So I'm a thousand percent cosigned with that. And having had that pie, that is a damn good pie, John. That is a damn good pie. It's way damn. too sweet on its own. And, uh, but then you add the salt and it tones it down, but then it's almost too salty, which is just like that glorious thing of like, give me another bite of that. It hurts, but it's so good. You know, you, you can't stop eating it. That's, yeah. it's great. And so savory pie, not something that you're necessarily known for, but I'm super interested if, if you have your amazing crust and you're filling it with some, some savoriness, what are you thinking? Well, we are known for our savory pies. Um, I don't sell them too much. Uh, I sell them at the farmer's market. And I'm going to have to say, um, and this one I didn't come up with, and we did win Best Pie in Denver for it in the Westward last year. And uh, it was put together by Maria Astorga, who is um, this wonderful employee of mine. And she makes, she took her homemade green chili one day and threw it inside one of our pies. And it is our number one savory award-winning pie, all thanks to Maria. Unbelievable. And somehow I haven't had this pie. It makes total sense. It's bringing, it's encapsulating Colorado green chili, which is iconic in the state of Colorado, right? And yep. your pie crust, and it's almost this, you know, it feels like a chicken pot pie 
reimagined in this very regional way. So I'm digging it, man. Savory pie. Way to, way to come through with a strong savory pie. Yep. And that's all Maria's creation. And uh, my friend Simran Sadie is one who's like, you got to do savory pies. You got to do savory pies. And there needs to be more savory pies in America. Um, the the uh, USDA has should change its rules about that so we can make them more accessible. Love it. I love that Maria got a shout out. That's great. That was an awesome game of live free pie hard. Thank you for imparting <laughs> some knowledge and wisdom onto the pie game. Thank you. All right, let's talk about some of your people now, some of those people that have impacted you along your career. We've already got to mention a few people, which I think is great. Uh, I thought this was very interesting in talking with you. I'm so fascinated where creativity comes from, what sparks it, and I'm especially, especially interested when creativity potentially comes from outside of purely being food creativity. And you were a ceramics major, which I didn't even realize was a major that you could have. And I know that had a major impact on you early on. So let's, let's talk about that time and, and who really crystallized ceramics for you at that pivotal moment in your life. Um, so I picked up ceramics in, in high school and um, I, I was really good at it. And I was being put in, I was creating things and being put in juried events and college, um, you know, uh, competitions and winning. And um, it was something that, that followed me for a long, really, really long time. And, and I came out here to Denver and um, I didn't have expectations so much of continuing with the ceramics, but it turns out University of Denver had one of the best ceramic, uh, two of them, uh, ceramic artists in the country as professors there. Um, one being was uh, Maynard Tischler, who, uh, I know my mother and father went to DU, and I know my mom used to babysit Maynard's children um, way, way back before I was around. And then he was still at the school, and then there was a guy named John Ballesteri, who that name might sound familiar because his family owns Ballesteri Wines uh, here in Denver. And um, John was a major influence on me because he's the guy that taught me what craftsmanship was and what it looked like. And I remember on one final, um, I had like 300 pots on a table and, you know, to be critiqued. And he, he came into the room and walked around the table for like 20 minutes and looked at them all. He didn't pick anything up and it totally freaked me out. And uh, he took a broomstick and started at one end of the table and started pushing them all off the table. And they, as they started to smash, and um, he left like four good pots left on the table. And he said, those are your four. And, you know, that was pretty harsh. But on the other hand, it taught me, um, you know, it taught me to take pride in what my stuff is and, and, and how much work it takes to get to four. You know, and I think if you take a lot of photos these days, you can take you know, a thousand photos and only find four. You can make a thousand versions of pie and finally find the four that you like. You can, you know, all, all that background work that people don't see and all that effort, um, that really showed me a big piece of craftsmanship. Um, and there's some impermanence to it. Like, and I think that's interesting in the reflecting on the restaurant side because you're making art in your food and it's gone in an instant right it is it's consumed gone. in an instant and i think that's super 
super clever way to really shockingly and and kind of devastatingly showcase that point clearly it got through to you though it got through to me and then that kind of translates to the old school way of cooking too you know it's like you do it our way or the highway it 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 kind of solidified for me that that firmness of, of which i don't agree with so much today but of you know that shock value i, I almost cried when he did that you know it, it i've had put so much work into that and then um, you know, another really cool thing about him was he had a, a really unique kiln in town. Um, there was only two in the country. It's called a Nanagama kiln. And um, I think this goes back to my love of fire and baking. And um, it, it, it's this kiln that goes 20 feet into, the, into a hillside and you load all your pots in there green and it takes an entire week. So green means you don't fire them once. You put them in right after you make them. And, you fill this thing and it takes an entire week to do it. And then you seal it up with clay, the, the door and bricks, and then you light a match and throw a piece of wood in. And it takes about another week and a half to get it up to cone 10, which I, if my memory serves me correct, it's about 1300 degrees, but you gotta throw wood in this thing for a week and sit in front of it 24 seven and just stoke this fire. And it gets to a point where you're throwing fire, wood in the front and people are stoking the sides and you're putting in, big pieces of firewood and they are just evaporating in front of your eyes and you're getting a sunburn at 2 a.m. with your sunglasses on. It was one of the most intense experiences to do and that would draw really famous uh, other ceramic artists into town that wanted to fire their pieces in this unique kiln. So, um, you know, it also, it, it was cooking. It was the first form of cooking for me, you know. Yeah, and then the heat of the kitchen was never an issue for you, I'm sure. No, no working that grill at best, it was easy you know piece of cake yeah this is what what is this thing like 600 degrees that's adorable yeah it's adorable i love that <laughs> i think it's great again somebody like john balistari like setting the tone for you from a creative aspect and the fact that four made the cut i think now you just had such a, a laser focus on what the quality was and it cut through all of all of the bs and all of the thinking that you made 300 amazing pieces, you made four, but you did make four, because I'm sure there's plenty of people that made zero right. on that table. So the fact that you made four, I think, uh, is definitely something that you latched onto and then developed from there, so I think that's great. Well, move us forward now that you have this layer of creativity and, and John really helped crystallize some of that and, and hardened you a little bit. You got into the restaurant industry, Pasta Jay's was kind of a foray, but it was about fun. Now you're really serious about the food and that, that part of you is coming out. Talk to us about somebody who really crystallized being in a kitchen, being a chef, working in that environment for you. You know, I, I, um, I would have to say it would be like Matt Selby and Gabe Stallone uh, when we were in Vesta. You know, uh, I didn't have any culinary background. And, um, you know, that kitchen was thrown together really fast. And, um, you know, Matt knew everything about food and cooking and Gabe knew everything about making things in batches. And um, <clears throat> I was, I was the, the, the student pretty much the whole time. I mean, I literally came out of uh, Pasta Jays and, and that was just making, you know, marinara sauce and pulling stuff out of the oven. So that wasn't really high, high level, high level chefing. So, 
a lot of that stuff was done on the fly. And I, and I remember us, like if we got stuck to something back in those days, there wasn't a lot of culinary school, we would call uh, Noel Cunningham or we would call Sean Kelly or we would call another um, local chef and be like, hey, how do we make a bunch of Bernays and not have it break? Or how do we, you know? And so a lot of that um, cooking came, you know, from a phone call you know, or going over, I spent a lot of time over at, uh, at Pacific Mercantile um, behind the fish counter with this guy named Yoshi, and he t taught me how to take down a tuna, you know. Um, so it was really all kind of sought out and book reading chefing at that time. And um, I, I Tell never some had... stories. I want, I want some stories. I know there's so many good stories from those early Vesta days. Matt Selby has already come up multiple times on this show as somebody who really, I mean, he was just a, a kingmaker. You know, he definitely developed quite a few people. And I'm interested in some of those interactions with him, with Gabe, that you can just see those lessons learned or those goofy stories that you'll never forget. Give us some of those insights. Uh, let me tell you one story about Yoshi at, uh, at Pacific Mercantile first, because he taught me a lot from when I had a gelato shop. And he ran that fish counter. And he, t there was not a single person, no matter what he was doing, that he wouldn't turn around. And by the time they were from one end to that counter to the other, that they weren't laughing or smiling or something, you know, he'd always make a funny comment. And that really taught me, you know, the importance of customers and the joy of making somebody smile during the day unexpectedly. I, I do that. I find myself doing that a lot, um, especially at the farmer's market these days. Um, so Yoshi was a big piece of that for me, of who I am today. And, and stories from Vesta, man, you know, I just remember us working so hard and Maddie studying and coming in with these ideas and we'd be like, what the hell, how do we do that? And A, how do we do that? B, what the hell is that? And C, when are we going to make that? Um, and, and we would go and execute. And I, I think that kitchen had you know, just like my four pots, um, we made, so at that time we had, everything was on skewers. I don't remember. I think there was 12 skewers or something like that and 30 different dipping sauces. So not only did we have to skew everything and make all these dipping sauces, we were also trying to strive a step further than that. And um, those were, you know, 14, 16 hour days. And I, I could remember sleeping, standing up and in the, in the, uh, wash basin and um but we got through it and i remember there were some days that we would be at each other's throats and that's why i threw out the al green because you know uh, restaurant life is um constantly working triples i think and um so we had the prep shift and then by the end of the prep shift we you know weren't getting along and then we put al green on every day at four o'clock and listen to al green's greatest hits and and come back together as a team and then do service and then like you said, we had our cleanup music too, which was a local punk band that um, Maddie loved. And I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Maybe it'll come to me, but um, God, those were some really developing times and the support of Josh Walkon, you know, letting us do what we wanted to do, you know, and within a year that restaurant was a number one restaurant in, uh, in Denver, you know. Yeah, an icon, absolutely. You are moving from icon to icon for sure. Who else do you remember from those, those early days? I'd love to, to, to some other names of some people you got to work alongside, if you can remember, that were just um, fundamental to that place's early success. 
some of those people are still in my life today. Uh, Carrie Pastine lives right next door to me on the other side of the wall that I'm talking to you on right now. And she's one of my best friends. And she is a really popular, she's in a band called Carrie Pastine and the Crime Scene. And they are really big in Denver. Um, my friend Brandon Shevin I saw the other night. And um, he, uh, he's now a lawyer for AEG, I believe. And um, uh, my friends Lori and Phil Harris, they live around the corner from me. And I get the privilege of watching their kids grow up and, uh, you know, and teach them bad habits every now and then, like punch buggy and feeding them Coke at 9 o'clock at night, things like that. So that community is really still huge in my life, you know, and I still have a relationship to Vested today through Chow. You know, they've been huge supporters of um, what I'm trying to do with, with Chow. Yeah, you mentioned community, and I think this is a perfect segue. So that's really set a foundation for you, and like you're very committed to the long-lasting relationships. Chow, such an important organization that you launched, and I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit, and talk generally about what it means to connect with humans at the level and in the way that you're trying to with with this organization. So just briefly tell us what it's what it's about, and then who the people are that you're trying to support and trying to impact? Um, well, Chow came about because, um, you know, I think the whole reason I got into restaurants wasn't because of my love of food. It was because of how I could behave. Um, I was a huge uh, drinker and partier when I got into the restaurants. And that's what really appealed to me working at, working at Pasta J's, the beer taps are right across the, from the line. And like I said, it was all fun. And, um, and that kind of, that's, the real reason I think I got into the restaurants minus the spilling the, the iced teas on the man. But, um, so I am coming up on nine years being sober now. And, um, and a lot of people that can go unnamed, um, you know, help me get to here for free. And, uh, it was all because I started randomly saying yes to things I would normally say no to. And that word just started coming out of my mouth. And that, and that was because I was willing to talk. And I think that that's how the first step in healing. So CHOW stands for um, Culinary, Hospitality, Outreach, and Wellness. And um, Alex Palmerton uh, was with 303 Magazine and did an interview and with me about, wanted to ask me about my sobriety. And I said, this is great, but I'd like to take it a step further. You know, I'd like to have a meeting. Let's do some, let's have some action here because uh, approximately, um, 7,000 chefs are dying a year currently from suicide because of stress and they're not talking and, you know, they're dying over dinner, basically. And um, so we decided after the interview that we would take 30 days and um, have the meeting at, at my bakery and just the way the universe works, uh, Anthony Bourdain, unfortunately, um, committed suicide a few days before our first meeting. Um, and next thing you know, there was about 30 or so people uh, at the bakery on a Monday night. And, um, and we just started talking. Everybody told their story. And meanwhile, I took a bunch of notes about trying to find all our common commonalities here. And, um, you know, Chow isn't about not drinking. It's about coming to talk about where it hurts. Um, a really big, important piece of that for me, of where it hurts is... Um, how do you fix what you can't see? Like I can break my arm and I can go to the doctor and they can put a, a cast on it and I can be back to, and I can watch it heal and I can um, 
be using my knife again in a few weeks. And, I'm, and I go on with my life and that, and that happened. But with mental health and in my case, alcoholism, that's something I live with every day. And how do I fix what I can't see? Because that's something that lives inside of me, you know? And, um, and, and the one way to do that, you know, I have a sickness of my soul. I think this, this problem kind of lives in our soul. And, um, and just by talking about it and hearing your story come out of somebody else's mouth will change your life, you know? And it's the first steps into starting to get real help. So um, Chow is made to be kind of, for lack of a better term, the first bite of mental health, you know? Hey, come hear some stories, come tell your story. Learn that you're not alone and, you know, hope eventually, you know, we're starting to get some money now. Um, hopefully Chow will be able to, um, you know, provide some services for people to go maybe to their first therapist or their first massage or their first something, you know, and can, you know, be a, a gateway into getting, the, getting people the help that they need. Yeah, I think you mentioned something that I think is important that it's not just about not drinking. And so I think this is not necessarily a group that's about recovery or addiction in the way that maybe, you know, a 12 step program an Al-Anon program type thing is there's so much need just for being okay with not being okay. I think it's something that uh, Brandon Foster back to Vesta says yep. in his interview as a quote. And I think it's really, really important. So I'd like you to go a little deeper on who needs this. I think my answer is everybody needs to yeah. be able to have some kind of camaraderie that's outside of the shit show that is a restaurant or the drinking and debauchery that is, you know, that, yeah, who, that who is not going you know? away. But it's, right. it's like, what are the positive outlets and how can we support each other in a more holistic way inside and outside of work? So who really needs to be a part of Chow? I think everybody, you know, every in the opening line, it says, welcome, you know, servers cooks writers farmers suppliers you know um it, it's open to everybody and and it's not about quitting anything it's it's about starting the conversation and um and everybody can be involved in a conversation and everybody's been affected i don't think there's a single person out there that hasn't been affected by mental health in one way or the other whether they live with somebody that deals with it or they have it themselves um you know there's a there, there is a thing in, in alcoholism that like the alcoholic affects 10 other people in, in their lives in that circle. You know, they're not just hurting themselves because they drive the other 10 people just as crazy as the alcoholic because they're running around trying to save that person. And the extremes that they would go to, that behavior is just as crazy as what the alcoholic is out doing, you know, in order to save that. So I think everybody's affected. Yeah, it, it makes complete sense. And the more that we mainstream the opportunity to have that conversation, to have a meaningful dialogue, I think is very, very important. We're in the hospitality industry. It's about people. And we yeah. forget that we need to take care of ourselves and our people, as well as the people that walk through our doors. So I think it's very, very important. Now, this podcast is not about plugs. However, this is so important and this is so communal that I think everybody listening will get value. So please do tell us where can people go, website, social media? How can they connect with Chow? Um, we have a group on uh, Facebook that I just opened up to the public. And uh, anybody can come and join. And we post the meetings uh, times on that. But we are currently meeting 
every Monday night at 6 p.m. at 1411 Ogden Street, um, right near the Ogden Theater. Uh, last night was the first Denver, Colorado. Yeah. In Denver, Colorado. Yep. Um, and then and we're that starting. Facebook group is that just backslash Chow C H O W? Uh, yeah, just look up um, okay. Chow on the Facebook, and then we have Chow Co. Org, C H O W C O dot org, and that's our main website with some more information and about us, and um, and it has our mission statement up there and stuff like that. So and I highly, highly recommend. Chapter, oh, I'm oh, sorry, we're starting ahead, a chapter, chapter up in Boulder as well. Great, great. So we had our first meeting with that last night, and uh, those locations. Keep an eye on the Facebook for that. So highly recommend people getting involved if you are in the Denver Boulder Front Range area of Colorado, as well as everybody listening that is outside the state of Colorado. If you have organizations similar and want to connect with a like-minded organization to pool resources, to have somebody to bounce ideas off of, that kind of thing, as well as if you are in your own town, city, in your hospitality market, looking to have this kind of organization developed in your city, do not hesitate to reach out to Chow, to John Hinman on that front, because I know getting this going all over the country is something important that we need, and that is really, really driving John these days. Yeah, thanks for telling us about that. And I would love to hear from other people around the country, because um, I think there's a national message here that, that has to be put together and uh, I would love to hear what other people are doing and uh, I have talked to several and um, you know we are kind of talking to each other about how we can you know better move it forward as as one rather than having 200 similar groups coming out you know I think there's a national voice to be found here yeah, and a program said, move, and all the conversation forward is going to be important and if there's a way that that happens cohesively i think it makes it makes a lot of sense so yeah really grateful that that you are spearheading something that is so personal and important to you and making it okay for that conversation to have the opportunity to see the the light of day and not be hidden behind closed doors and and be more inclusive which i think is very very important john yeah i'm the walking dead you know i should not be here you know so um it's really important to me to to give back, you know, and the first Boulder meeting last night, it just happened to be at the place that I checked myself into walking and talking with a 0.47 blood alcohol. And that was a big, um, that was a big circle close for me last night to have the first child meeting at that facility. It was really cool. I'm sure that was heavy and cathartic at the same time for yeah. sure. So, well, that was, that was, that was deep. And I appreciate you being open and, and vulnerable and uh, celebrating something like what comes out of your own uh, personal angst. And I want to roll right into something that's so important in this show coming. It's hard to have it come right after something that is so fundamental and important to the industry as a whole. However, we are so committed to nominating and celebrating, recognizing, acknowledging unsung hospitality heroes. The people that are so important, so foundational and, and paramount to our industry that sometimes don't get the recognition. So I'd like to give you the opportunity to nominate, to shout out your unsung hospitality hero. Who is that for you? I'm going to give a shout out to my really good friend, uh, Jameson Velasquez, who makes wonderful barbecue and he can be found at the Moonlight Diner 
it's on your way to the airport out there. And Jameson, I think everybody knows him. He's been in the Denver restaurants for over 30 years and has done several events, you know, and um, everybody will know, know him when they see him. And uh, man, that guy is so committed to food and hospitality and people. He's just a wonderful dude that we don't hear enough about. Yeah, those there's so many Jamesons out there that we need to spend as much time yeah. speaking about and celebrating because not only for what they do, but also just to set the tone that people at every level of our industry matter, that it's not just about the acclaimed chefs or restaurateurs or bartenders or brewers. It's about everybody on the team, everybody within our community. And the more time we spend celebrating, the better off it's going to be. And, and so again, have open dialogues about everybody, I think will also fundamentally help the conversations you're trying to have within Chow. So I think it all, it all comes full circle. It all interweaves, which is really cool. So Jamison Velasquez, you are an unsung hospitality <laughs> hero. John, he, thank you for introducing us to somebody people might not know about. Yeah, he's one of the people that sustained me today, just as we sustain food. James, Jameson is one of my, one of my farmers. <laughs> so good, John. So good. Well, let's end this episode. You couldn't pick just one quote, one mantra, which I love. And you have two things that you want us to, to think about that really guide you. First, you say, live like the extraordinary is ordinary. And you also say, it's not about the bread. Tell us what those two statements really mean to you and how they guide you. Uh, well, it's not about the bread. It's not about the macaroni and cheese. It's not about, it's not about the faux gras. It's, it's about us, right? It's about the people that we serve. It's about us communicating. It's about human beings. You know, it's about our higher, our higher purpose in life. You know, cooking is something that we love to do, but it's not exactly always who we are. So I think it's a good reminder for me. It's, it's, on, it's up in my office that, hey, this is what we do, but this isn't what we are. And, um, and the other quote, um, live, you know, take the extraordinary as ordinary, is life is an extraordinary thing. And if we keep popping out and saying, oh my God, there's a miracle, a miracle, and life's full of these wonderful miracles that we get to live and we get to share and I get to be on your podcast and people are going to hear this and you get to talk to the next person and the next person. And those are all little miracles and those are, that's ordinary life, you know? And so uh, I'm very, very grateful to be here today. You know, I'm, like I said before, I think I'm a walking dead man. And, um, and so we just continue on with our life and, you know, try to strive for something higher. Yeah, and I want to give you a personal thank you when you talk about it. it's not about the bread, it's about the people, it's about building that community. And that's always been something that's clear in you. Uh, personally, you know, when I started Brewed Food, I had this crazy idea and we were doing these weird fermentations and stuff and you got your bakery, Hidman's Bakery, and you said, you know what, I want some cool, interesting people here doing fun stuff. And you opened up your space and brood food was there for several years doing weird stuff and 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 you were so open to that so it was really really important to me because it's the only reason that brood food ever got to get off the ground was your generosity to kind of open up and build a community and you had so many other other 
young people and, and food startups and, and people doing we have the chocolate hustles. guys and, and the granola guys going on and the I dog think it was great. lady and yeah and then we knew always knew when you were around because it's something really smelled funny it's like Justin's yeah. here somewhere uh, so I was always balancing out all the sugar <laughs> the sugar and vanilla in that place with you know some uh, some well-placed mold and bacteria uh, but it was super great it just is an illustration for me and a personal thank you that you really are living that that community day in and day out and it's so important to you to surround yourself with good people like-minded people and uh, a crazy fermenter like myself so much thank you to you unbelievable conversation like i knew i appreciate that thank you thank you so much for bringing value to the community as a whole and to the podcast today great conversation thank you very much jensen it was a pleasure working with you and talking to you today and hope to see more of you soon cheers so to no surprise john has been super forthcoming telling us about all his people geeking out on pie and record collections uh, the work that he's doing with chow and, and trying to really bring awareness to some of the seedy underbelly things we don't like to talk about in the industry with mental health and addiction all those things so he's doing great great work and i loved how much he fanboyed out on jamie velasquez here's barbecue and we got jamie on the line jamie thank you for talking with us yes thank you for having me yeah really excited i am hyper motivated now to have some of this barbecue that uh, John speaks so highly of, but let's start with a little bit of your origin story. So just tell us, where were you born? Where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in uh, Southern Colorado, a little town called La Jara, and uh, I was raised in New Mexico, and then uh, somehow landed up in Denver. Okay, now, I think of Southern Colorado, then you say New Mexico. There is the border debate of who's green chili. Being from California, I, I had no idea how fervent the passion for green chili was until I moved out here. Uh, I didn't understand what a, a carne asada burrito smothered with green chili actually meant until I moved here. And <laughs> was, was food a part of, of the culture growing up for you? Oh, yeah. Um... You know, watching eating with my family, and it was—I used to love eating with uh, my aunt because she'd cook, you know, home-style food like you can't get anywhere else. The chili and the tortillas, and then while we were eating, the stories that came with that—you know—of what it used to be like back in the day with her and growing up and the family. And it was a real. You know, the table was a real, uh, I don't know how to put it, a real kind of like sacred place, you know? Yeah, sacred gathering place. I, I love, I love that. So we got we to gotta poke into that just a little bit more. I am so fascinated with how food brings us together in such a meaningful way. And it creates family and community where there is, like you mentioned, with your, you know, and abuelita and like cooking as as a heritage but then potentially also just creating community and family from people that never met each other before so i'm fascinated that is there any little story or tidbit or, or isms i love aunt and grandma isms are some of the best anything you remember from those days that just really stick with you that somebody else might 
reflect on their own life and, and remember that moment within their own family? Um, you know, my, uh, my tia always used to tell me, you know, if you're going to do it, do it right. And um, I try to let that stick with me. Sorry about the phone. Let me turn it off. Hey, life happens, man. This is this podcast is about getting real stories out of real life, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, she was, uh, she used to do everything, you know, a certain way. And she'd always tell me, you know, do it right or, or don't do it at all. And then you get into the kitchen and you hear, you know, you do it right or do it twice. And um, so I was familiar with that when I first heard it. Yeah, that's like a, a such a foundational thing to to think about in the kitchens, and the fact that it was pounded in you early, I'm sure, made that transition into the kitchens super seamless. So, speaking of that transition, little segue right into always very interested in kind of our first job in the industry, how we got into it is always fascinating. Some people knew it from the get, some people just needed a summer job, some people said fuck nobody else will hire me like what was that for you what was the first job and then how did you just find your way into the kitchen uh my first job was uh, a dishwasher in albuquerque new mexico at a mexican restaurant called stuffies their their deal was is they were stuffed sopapilla so they would you know stuff them with everything hamburgers uh carne alovada um and I was a dishwasher there and I just, you know, I just uh, was mesmerized by the whole inner workings of, of the kitchen. You know, I, I love the camaraderie. I love, I remember watching the head cook come in like a little bit before uh, the rush, doing the rush and then leaving. And I'm like, God, how does that guy do that? It was like a superstar, you know? And um, it just, uh, it just called me, you know, it chose me. I didn't choose it. And uh, from there I started, you know, from dish to pots and pans to prep to, you know, full on cooking on the line. I'd always had to cook because uh, my mom worked a lot. She was a single mother bringing us up. And, you know, I cooked a lot for me and my brother growing up. And it was just something that was, uh, that I enjoyed and that I could do. I'm hearing a theme with the strong women kind of setting the tone for you from definitely from the work ethic standpoint. Why do you think all these years sticking with the restaurant industry, it, it, it grinds you, it beats you up. It has to be such a thing ingrained in your soul or you're a little touched in the head. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Yes. Why, why do you think the industry has continue to captivate you which i'm sure there's been a lot of ups and downs within that but maybe reflect on that for a moment um i don't know it's just uh, like i said it it uh it chose me and i've just i've been able to do it and i really didn't think i could do a lot of things well and so when i figured out i could do this and you know building a plate building a sauce building a menu, you know, building a team, all those things um, from just starting out as a line cook to growing up into management and then, you know, figuring out my niche, you know, what was my niche in food? Was it, uh, you know, just making uh, 
money for people that I worked for? Or was it my food? What was my food? And then all of a sudden came along, you know, barbecue and fire and smoke and getting these tough meats to be succulent and soft. It was a challenge and um, a challenge that I really wanted to, to dive into. And I'm still learning. I'm still learning about that every day. Like I'm still learning about managing people and building teams. You know, I, I, um, I work on it every day. I really like what you're saying is you, you kind of found your people, found your tribe. I'm, I'm really a believer in that dynamic and you know we're kind of an island of misfit toys rebels all, all those kind of cliche things but really it's about finding your people finding that tribe and so clearly you found that and then the niche I think that's great because sometimes our ability to cook across a broad spectrum of food styles sometimes we don't spend enough time thinking about like being a specialist I, I, I'm fascinated and I am super inspired by people that can dedicate themselves to like a singular focus within the industry. I have way too much uh, ADD to do that. I'm all over the place. So I'm always <laughs> respectful, very highly respectful of that. And clearly, again, John just geeked out. He fanboyed out. Uh, even after we stopped recording, he was just like, I could see, I could tell he was salivating over the phone talking about your barbecue. So let's talk about that a little bit as far as you know, you found your people and John became one of those people that clearly, you know, that relationship continues. Talk about John a little bit, you guys' relationship. And, you know, I'm fascinated in how the, the pie baker and the barbecue pro come together in a meaningful way. What's that relationship? Where did it start and, and how does it continue to flourish? Oh, man, I met John, Ken, like 10, 13 years ago downtown i believe he was working at uh lola's or jack's i can't remember where he was working at and we just kind of hit it off you know and we were trying to get our lives together so to speak you know and uh we just you know him being in the industry and me being in the industry we kind of clicked and we got to know each other or we got to help each other out through some of the hard times and you know the to see him pick up on that and to run with it with chow is is just amazing i've been to a, a couple meetings and especially in the beginning when he was getting it going and it seems like a really great outlet for for us in this industry because i mean where else can you go except a bar and whatever and let loose and try to explain yourself or express yourself or say hey uh you know i'm kind of going crazy over here it's not easy to do it's very yeah, hard we, to do. we have a lot of bravado don't we like in the yeah. industry it's almost like a i can take more than the next guy i can take <laughs> punishment and again it's so polarizing it's such a balancing act because yeah like being able to to handle the shit is pretty important. It's extremely yeah. valuable. And there's some camaraderie and, and depth of relationships built, except we got to know when that stops and when we get back to a reality of trying to be a, a balanced human being. So I think that's, I think that's super important. 
and those those struggles are real and and so I, I like that we're in a place where chow can can have attention no matter what the organization does or whatever just an opportunity to have a space where you can come and just even like shoot the shit not over a, a beer you know and, and and just balancing that out and sometimes you know for some people shooting shit over beer is great for other people it leads down an insane path of like not being able to control your life it's just such a balancing act and and for each of us it's different but i think the fact that we're allowed to talk about it seemingly now is i think super important so i'm very interested in that so both of us very inspired by what john is doing now having these deep relationships kind of outside of our own kitchens i think is important and we're building this tribe all, all these dynamics we're talking about at play right now uh with john specifically i guess for me it's john's an easy dude to talk to i'm interested from your perspective as we're trying to give a roadmap to people on mentorship and and building a team and all these different things john specifically why is that dude just good to talk to try to put your finger on it i think because he gets it he's been there gets it that's so true when you uh when you try to talk to somebody who's read it in a book, it's different than talking to somebody who's lived it and can say, yeah, I've been there. Um, I think that's why he's so effective plus effective. Plus he can, he's a good listener. You know, uh, it takes, uh, it takes that also to let people, to let people say what they need to say, you know, and, that doesn't mean you have to co-sign their bullshit and say, oh, yeah, 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 you're right all the time. It just means that you can let them say what they say. And if you feel like you got to say something back, you say something back. There's many times I've been on the phone with him and I've been telling him one thing and he comes in with a different perspective. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly it. I missed it a little bit. I was a little bit sidetracked. And I think um, it's hard for us to be honest with each other because we want to we want to be liked and we want to be uh, revered and esteemed by other people and we don't want to say the wrong things sometimes and that gets missed a lot lately um, in our society. We're we're afraid to say, hey, you know what, man? This is what it's really about. This is what we work for. You know, we work, I tell my people all the time, we come to work to do a job so we can live our life outside of here. You know, don't make this your life. Your life is out there to be lived. And, um, and it's hard. It's a hard rock to, to make a life on. But um, if you surround yourself with people like John, it makes it a little bit easier every day just to get through it. Yeah, that is, that is profound for sure. The other thing, in a, in a very practical way, too, to your point of kind of John's ability to interact in a conversation with you, he is really good at just saying some goofy-ass shit at the right time. Like, he, he just knows, like, when it's time to like, be serious, and then other times just to say some, some silly stuff just to break the tension but not make – light of the seriousness of what's happening and that seems like an easy thing that is so hard 
like so hard to do and i think he does it very well and uh you know you talk you hear comedians say that comedy comes from a dark place right and it's yeah. their perspective on the world uh, john gets that i i absolutely think that john could be a stand-up comic he just has that timing and delivery and so having had conversations with john as well in all kinds of facets where he's advising me i'm advising him things like that there's always those moments where there's just like that break and creating a little levity so i really really love that so anybody who's who's trying to have deep and profound conversations with people in the industry be real to your point and also just say some goofy ass shit and don't take yourself too seriously is yeah. definitely what i take away from john uh, and I'd love also, you talked about uh, talking to your team, your people building that team. Uh, what's happening in your world right now? And I'd love for you to have an opportunity to just give a shout out to a few of the, the people in that inner circle within the industry in your kitchen that are really meaningful to you and that are making shit happen. Well, right now I'm running uh, the kitchen at Moonlight Diner and uh, we're uh, experiencing a growth down over there in the DIA area, Green Valley Ranch area, that's just uh, amazing. Um, every month we're just breaking sales records and sales records. And within that, uh, my boss has allowed me to um, express my creativity through barbecue. And we put barbecue on the menu and we've uh, started a barbecue catering company. Uh, with 62nd Street Barbecue, and it's been uh, it's been an experience. It's been a ride. Um, and looking to this next year, you know, we just keep growing organically. You know, we haven't really put anything out there. We're just uh, getting all of our our uh, notoriety from word of mouth. People that come in have tried it, like it, and um, telling their friends about it. So that's that's really exciting. Right now in the in the kitchen, you know, we got guys that are that are working hard. We we mainly do uh, breakfast. You know, we open up at six thirty in the morning, and we start slanging eggs. And eggs are fast. Eggs cook in a hurry, and people expect their breakfast in a timely manner. And so that line can be brutal. And when it's packed, and there's a line out the door, and you know, we've been grinding for already three hours going into it. I look at these guys and, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud to work beside them. You know, they're, they're mainly from Mexico. And I have two key people right now um, working on the line. I got a, a, day, a day guy. His name is, we call him Tio. And um, he helps me run the line during the day. and. I have a, a woman at night who runs the line at night. Her name is Luz. And without their help, I just would not know. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be in trouble for sure. You know, a long time ago when I first started in management, I, I didn't get the people piece that much at all. And now I get it. You know, I'm only as successful as, as they are. So I try my best to help them out, to give them what they need to succeed in their job. And in that, I think it helps them to succeed in their life outside of work. 
Yeah, that's so good to hear that the people part is always the most important. It's the quickest thing to forget about, especially when you said notoriety, the word notoriety. And I remember that word being something every time that I bought into my notoriety and forgot about my people, I fucked up. Every time I remember that I work for them and the notoriety is celebrating them, not me, I won. Right. And, and it was very binary. Every single time I can look back so I can respect that. When you said Tio, it's so interesting. Like right away, I, I knew exactly who you're talking about. It's, yeah. it's uncle, like it's unk. That's, that's the guy that holds it down. That like, is a rock in the kitchen is unflappable and you always know you can rely on them. They'll always just, they have some isms, right? There's some stuff they say or they do. And you're like, that's so to you, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm fascinated if I'm correct. So maybe give us a little story, a little background or depth on Tio, because I, I know that I know this dude and I know a lot of other people have that same kind of persona in their kitchen. Give us a little, little ism, a little something on Tio and, and see if I'm on the right track. Yeah, he, uh, you know, like we all have, uh, when, we're, when we're on it and we're in our shift, you know, we always have that one thing that keeps us going because it's a, it's, it's kind of gets monotonous. And whenever he sees me walking around and I'm not working right beside him, he always uh, shouts out my, he always shouts out Pelon. And that's what, the, that's what they call me in the kitchen because I have no hair. So they, uh, they call, everybody called me Pelon. Even they got, his wife made me some tamales for, uh, Christmas and on the tamales it said puerco and then on bottom it said pelon <laughs> and I teased her about that because if you put them together it's like you're calling me a pig you know and I was like hey that ain't very nice and we all had a little laugh about that but Tio's uh he's a family man you know his his wife works for us his daughter works for us um and he's uh he's a key piece in the puzzle um you know, he, uh, whenever I'm, <laughs> I'm on the line and I'm helping him out, he always, uh, he always encourages me. Like, I, I don't know. He just says some, uh, says some crazy stuff sometimes, you know, that I'm not too sure it's, uh, it's fit for radio or whatever this is. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if anybody's actually listening. So anything's good for this, but it's a hundred percent. I, I, you're, you're telling, you say Tio and I know, instantly I know. You're telling me a story. I just, I've never met Tio and I literally could walk in the kitchen and just start vibing with him because exactly that. He calls you alone. For anybody who doesn't know, he calls you a ball. He's basically, you're as bald as a soccer ball is, yeah. is what he's saying, a football. And that's it. They just, they just know how to say some stuff that like, that grounds you. A lot of times they're like saying, get off your high horse, come on, Pelon, focus, whatever that is. But it's the same thing we talked about with John, just that moment of levity where they just say some goofy shit that just resets it. Because a lot of times they, you're taking yourself too seriously, right, is basically yep. what he's saying. I love yep. it. And that's it. That's our tribe. Tio never met the guy. I've, I've, I've worked with so many Tios, and they're so necessary. Like our band of characters – they end up playing out because we keep surrounding ourselves with Tios because they're everything. They're the only thing that matter in our industry, right? We need yep. more and more Tios. Jamie, I knew John was going to have somebody amazing for me to talk to. 
unbelievable conversation. Really love how you're recognizing the people, how Tio is somebody fundamental and just kind of that care for the people in your kitchen and your team, keeping you grounded and humbled. The relationship with John and everybody like it is so important. It's the only thing that keeps us sane in this industry. So thank you for the conversation. I appreciate your time and your leadership in the industry. Thank you very much, man. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.